Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, November the 10th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to my show, The Guy Benson Show, every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's every single weekday. If you can listen live during those hours, we appreciate it. We recommend it. If you can't or miss some of it, there's a podcast. It is free. It is on demand. It is every day, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the info you need about your various options are there, GuyBensonShow.com. And for the podcast, you also have FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I write there almost every day. Also a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel, Brett Bayer and company, around 6.45 p.m. Eastern. I was on last night, on again tonight, so double duty here. Hope to see you there on Fox News Channel this evening. On the radio show, here's our lineup. Charlie Hurt will be here later on in the hour, Fox News contributor, also opinion editor at the Washington Times. We'll get his take on the midterms. Some analysis in our next hour from Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Uh, really get his take. I'm fascinated to hear what he's seeing, what he's thinking of this midterm cycle that has been very unusual in a number of ways. We still don't have a call in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, both of which could change hands. There was not a red wave, but it could end up with Republican control in one or both houses, probably in the House of Representatives, maybe in the Senate. A lot of question marks here a few days after the election. One lack of question mark, one definitive answer, is that in New York State, Republicans have flipped a number of House seats from blue to red. One of those seat flippers on Long Island is George Santos, a Republican from the Empire State. And he was running in a tough seat for the Republicans, and he won it. He won it by eight points on Tuesday night. He will be a member of the Republican, likely, majority starting next year. And we mentioned him on the show yesterday. He's making history in a few ways. Very interesting candidate. I've met him a couple of times. George Santos here on the show talking about his electoral experience in New York, that's in our middle hour. In our final hour, Jessica Tarloff will join us, giving her perspective as a Democrat. Where do they go from here? Does it change the way that Democrats were thinking about their party, their leadership, President Biden? We will pick Jesse's brain in our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. As we come on the air here today, I would like to begin with a brief and I think righteous rant about the excruciating, seemingly endless, drawn-out process of counting votes in a number of American states. It is ridiculous. 
It is absolutely ridiculous. We live in the greatest nation on earth. We are one of the longest standing advanced democracies in the world. We're the superpower in the world. We've landed men on the moon, for goodness sake. And yet in a number of states across this country, it takes days, sometimes weeks, simply to tabulate votes after elections that are regularly scheduled. It blows my mind. Now, I'm not saying that we should look to other countries, but just as a point of reference, when the U.K. has an election, they have a different system, of course, parliamentary, it's not the same, and it's a little bit more complicated. They do a lot of stuff top-down in that country. We don't by design. That's good. But they have a lot of people who live in the United Kingdom. Tens of millions of people vote in their elections. And the moment that the polls close, they typically have on the news networks highly accurate exit polls that come very close to projecting exactly what's going to happen nationally in the election. Whereas, obviously, there's something seriously wrong with our polling in this country. I mean, think about the number of polling misses in recent cycles and then this year. In 2022, there were some huge polling misses That favored Republicans. And there were some huge polling misses that favored Democrats. And it seemed sort of like random. Who benefited from the polling misses and who didn't? I think we had Robert Cahaley from Trafalgar on a couple times. He's got some explaining to do. They were way off in a bunch of their races in a way that they haven't been recently. I think they were making some assumptions about the electorate and sort of modeling certain things that did not come to pass and therefore... As embarrassing as some of the results were in a number of the big boy prestige polls the last couple of years, well, they've got a lot of egg on their face now. Some of the pollsters that were showing a huge Republican night and right there in the thick of it to win some Senate races in very blue territory, I mean, this didn't happen. But in the U.K., they can, you know, Close the polls, put out an exit poll, and it's almost exactly what's going to happen. Brazil just had their national runoff election. What a nightmare ideologically, by the way, from my perspective. Basically a commie against one of these populist alt-right types. Former commie president against the, the current right-wing president. Just populists. Left-wing and right-wing populists. It's just like, pick your poison. I, of course, generally find communists to be probably the worst poison, so there you go. But they won. The commies won, barely, in Brazil. Very closely divided country. I think I saw the total number of votes, 118 million thereabouts, 100 to 120, something like that. Many, many, many votes across a vast country with a lot of people much less advanced than the United States of America, and yet they were able to tabulate all of those votes in a matter of hours in Brazil. But here in the United States, what is it, mid-afternoon, the Thursday after a Tuesday election, and we do not know the outcomes of a number of very important Senate and gubernatorial races in this country because they are still counting votes. Arizona, I'm looking at you. 
Nevada as well. We saw a similar mess in Pennsylvania in 2020. It just makes me crazy that these states, even after multiple debacles, stick with systems that make no sense. And what I think is particularly aggravating, let's just talk about for a second Arizona. We don't know who won the governor's race. We don't know who won the Senate race. There's a couple of other statewide races. There's congressional races out there as well. And as of yesterday, I told you on the show that there were a little less, we thought, than 500,000 uncounted ballots on Wednesday. 500,000. Then I saw a number hours later where the number went up. The number of uncounted ballots went up. So I believe, and it's hard to keep track of this. Like It's completely mind-boggling. They're like, oh, there's a new pocket of, we think, early votes that came in from Pima County, and that doesn't belong in this pile. It belongs in that pile, and we think they're going to break this way because they were this kind of vote, so that might favor the Democrats. And I guess there's another Maricopa ballot dump, uh, County ballot dump coming uh, at 8 p.m. or whatever. This is no way for an advanced civilized society to administer elections. It's madness. You have even the experts who are supposed to know about these things just kind of doing back-of-the-envelope guessing games. It's Thursday. There are still hundreds of thousands of outstanding votes to count in Arizona. And because of the blue mirage effect, it's entirely possible that one or more Republican statewide candidates will come from behind and end up winning. The Kerry Lake people for governor apparently feel confident they're going to win based on the trajectory of these votes getting counted and what kind of votes they are and where they're coming from and all of that. The Blake Masters campaign for Senate, it sounds like he's got a chance as well. I cannot confidently tell you if any of that is true because I don't know. What I do know is that the Thursday after a Tuesday election in the United States of America... We should not be playing these kinds of games and wondering about how the counting of hundreds of thousands of ballots might play out. Nevada is another example. Hugely important Senate race in that state. It looks like Adam Laxalt is in good position to win it. But it's not finalized because you've got some of the number crunchers and some of the experts out there saying, oh, well, there's, we think this certain number of mail-in ballots from Clark County and Vegas that still come in and they'd have to break this amount, D versus R, if Cortez Masto can come back. But then there's Washoe County and there's some other ballots coming in there. What about the rurals? Do we have all the rurals? It's Thursday, guys. Get your act together. I have to be careful with my language here. It just drives me crazy. How is this possible? And of course it's possible because it's happened before. We just like step on the rake over and over again. I guess some people are satisfied with these systems. I can't imagine who those people are. And I'm not just going to whine and complain. There's a solution here that I'll offer in just a second. But before I get to the offering of, of solutions, let me give one more example, which is California. California, let me bring up the New York Times numbers here that I was just looking at before the show. California has, as of like an hour ago, approximately 20 house races, U.S. house races, 20 of them, that are uncalled. 
It is freaking Thursday almost evening, and there are 20-plus outstanding house races in California. Now, there is a very closely watched mayoral election in Los Angeles, right? So they fell short in getting the signatures to oust the district attorney, but there's a big battle for the mayorship of Los Angeles between Karen Bass, who's a progressive, and Rick Caruso, who's sort of a moderate Democrat, former Republican, independent-ish guy. He's saying he's a Democrat, but look. Let me put it this way. If I were living in Los Angeles, God forbid. Sorry, Los Angeles. It's not for me. But if I were living out there, Rick Caruso would be my vote for sure. He's a businessman. He takes crime seriously. Karen Bass is just this, you know, empty suit progressive. So I'm looking at the results. This was the mayor election in Los Angeles, the second largest city in America. And Rick Caruso has a lead over Karen Bass, 51% to almost 49%. Okay, so that's sort of good. Maybe he's going to win, except you look at how much of the vote is in, in terms of having been counted, would you care to guess? 44%. 44% of the expected vote, less than half, has been counted in Los Angeles Thursday afternoon after the election. And by the way, the last update This is from the New York Times. The latest results came in at 9.44 p.m. Eastern Time yesterday. What the hell are they doing? Like, I I guess they're opening envelopes and counting, and they'll just dump stuff out from time to time, and the number jumps up 44% by Thursday? This is crazy. This is unacceptable. And in an era where we have a problem where people don't trust election results sometimes and there's conspiracy theories and people don't want to accept election results that they don't like, whether it's Donald Trump or Stacey Abrams or whatever, I think it is imperative that we have reliable, prompt, fast election tabulations and reporting on election night. And we know that it can be done because it is done. I've talked about Florida before. Let me talk about it again. Here's the solution side. State of Florida had a meltdown in 2000. Hanging chads, dimpled chads, the whole thing. Now, look, in fairness to them, an entire presidential election was coming down to one state, and that one state ultimately was decided by about 500 votes. So an American presidency hung and swung on 500 votes in a massive state. So I understand things taking a while and being messy, but their system was rife with problems. It was a laughing stock. It was very, very ugly. George Bush won. And if you go back, despite all the left-wing conspiracy theories and election denial and attacks on the Supreme Court, etc., if you counted the votes any way the Democrats wanted them to be counted, every single way you count all the votes, George W. Bush won. Just as a matter of fact... For the record, Bush won. Afterwards, his brother, Jeb, was the governor. He said, okay, we can't do this again. We can't have this happen again. He went out, figured out best practices, and implemented a new system in Florida that has worked very well. They've perfected it. They've got it down to a machine. It's a science. And the way they do it makes perfect sense. You've got lots of ways you can vote. You can vote early. There's vote by mail. There's in-person early voting. It doesn't go on for like, you know, a month and a half or whatever. But you've got ample opportunity to vote in Florida. 
virtually any way you want to. And then, as the votes come in during the early voting in mail, and they have deadlines for stuff, they count as they go. So they have a big pot of votes already counted on election night. The polls close. They put out the numbers that they already have. Then in come the election day votes. They count those quickly. They add them to the totals, and they're done. On election night in Florida, setting aside the epic, historic, mind-bending landslide victories for the Republicans. Ron DeSantis won by almost 20 points. They were done counting, or 97% report or whatever, by 11 p.m., three hours after the polls closed. Done. Effective, reliable, efficient results. There is no reason why that system and that process cannot be replicated all across the country. The federal government shouldn't require it. It's up to the individual states, but my goodness, states, get your act together. And I know you might want to say, oh, ha, ha, Florida, man, Florida. They know what they're doing there, and you could learn something from them because this, whatever we're doing here in California and Arizona and Nevada, waiting for all this stuff, no, enough. It is unhelpful. It's actually harmful, I would say. All right, off the soapbox, heading into commercial break, just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest Home Services Marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. A less heralded outcome on Tuesday in the elections. I want to tell you about two of them. They're actually quite consequential. In Ohio and North Carolina, there were state Supreme Court elections. Republicans swept all three of the races in Ohio. They had a huge night statewide in Ohio led by the governor, Mike DeWine. In North Carolina, the conservative candidates also won both of those races, flipping a 4-3 Democratic majority to a 5-2 Republican majority in that state Supreme Court. Why does that matter in either state? Well, for various reasons, right? A lot of stuff makes it up to a state Supreme Court. 
but also on redistricting and drawing districts. Some of the experts are saying between those two states, you could see four to six new Republican districts drawn by 2024. So if some of the gains in some blue territory might go away, might not in 2024, if Democrats win back some of those seats, there might be some new Republican seats in some of these redder states being created and approved by the Supreme Courts of those states that have now changed because of the elections on Tuesday. There's something to keep an eye on. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. Lots of goodies there, plus that free podcast every day on demand. With us now is Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at the Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Charlie, welcome back. Good to be with you guys. All right, so let's just talk about uh, some of your big-picture reactions. I'm going to be talking to a bunch of our regular guests here over the coming days and probably weeks about just how they're digesting what happened on Tuesday. And, of course, we're still waiting on some of these results. But overall, we're getting a picture of what probably happened. What do you make of it? Well, uh, the first thing is, obviously, I I think, uh, along with a lot of people, I was surprised by um, the outcome. I, I... you know, it's just kind of crazy. I don't know uh, the last time I saw a situation where you had the, the level of di- voter discontent, the issues facing voters that – and what was so unique about this, I thought, was how directly you could tie so many of the problems, like inflation, like open borders, like crime, directly to the policies of the party that was in power, that that, that, that party in power didn't get a withering – Denunciation on election day. That said, I I think that there is a lot more good news here than I think that, that our surprise by how bad it wasn't for Democrats has concealed the fact that there was a lot of good news in this for Republicans. And I feel like you've done a good job. You're doing just a good job. Good job just a minute ago, explaining a, a lot of the bright spots in the election. And I think there are even more. Um, uh, and then, and then not only um, were there a lot of bright spots in the election this time, but I also think that that with the messages that Republicans are honing, that in two years from now, I think that they're going. Republicans are going to be in a very good situation to continue making gains uh, off of those with those exact same issues. So, Charlie, it looks like, and I see some of the smart set who they follow this stuff very closely, they're saying Republicans are going to win the National House so-called popular vote, which is in some ways an irrelevant metric because that's not how those elections are tabulated, right? right? The, the national popular vote is, is kind of an interesting metric, but not one that actually matters in our system. Matters, right? and, and sometimes, you know, in, in Senate 
cycles, the Democrats love to say, look how many votes that we won in our Senate races, and yet this is so anti-democratic. Like, they play these games. I'm just going to point out that this year Republicans are projected to win by, I think, about two points nationally, the popular vote. And with that, they will probably have a very, very, very thin House majority and maybe a very, very thin Senate majority as well. That's going to come down to a couple of states here. There's still three remaining. So I guess that would be the good news that Republicans, you know, won the the so-called popular vote, won one probably, if not both, maybe houses of Congress. But the margins, as you pointed out, you know, really are surprisingly tight. And part of the reason is I was looking at the Fox News voter analysis, which is sort of our advanced exit polling, Republicans narrowly lost independence. Republicans were expecting a pure independence. I think sometimes, you know, there's folks who say that they're independent and then they they actually lean one way or the other. So I think probably among independents without the leaners, Republicans did better. But among the pure independent voters, Republicans narrowly lost those voters, which is not what anyone was expecting. It's not what history dictates typically happens. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. If they went almost evenly between Republicans and Democrats, those pure independents, despite all the problems that you just mentioned, all the so-called fundamentals of the race, it seems like you had a lot of people, this is just my read on it, but not not a profound one, a lot of people who were very unhappy with the status quo, very unhappy with the president, not thrilled with the direction of the country at all, but they did not know which party they wanted to vote for because, in some respects, both were unpalatable to them. That, I think, is an indictment of both parties, but at least in this context, a little bit more of the Republicans because usually the opposition party almost by default wins a lot of these people just because they're not the people in charge and people aren't happy, not this time, at least among independents, Charlie. I was very surprised by that guy, um, because, like you say, especially uh, independents usually break for the outside party. And in a in a situation where everything indicates huge dissatisfaction among voters, you would expect it to break much harder for, in this case, Republicans. Um, I think that without a doubt, you cannot ignore the fact that abortion did wind up playing a major role in the election. I think that um, the fact, you know, when, when you look at the number of young voters who showed up and voted, and I, you know, I don't know what the, how they, you may know this, I, I don't know how those voters tended to break down in terms of independence versus affiliated, but the fact that so many young voters did show up and voted for, for on abortion um, I think tells you tells you something, but but the, but even in that guy, I would say that there is some sort of good news there because for Republicans, and that is this that that there was a huge effort, and I would say by people to lie to those young voters about what the Dobbs decision actually meant, and I think a lot of people were energized, young people in particular were energized by that. Uh, but but in a weird way, that election is the Band-Aid being ripped off the wound. As things settle down and people begin to realize, oh, okay, this is not, does not, you know, I still do have this right within my state to set abortion policy by voters, 
um, as as the farther we get away from this uh, that decision, the less of an impact, the less room there is to be able to lie to those voters and and try to turn that into an issue. And so, in that respect, I, you know, even even when it comes to that, and I, obviously, th- th- I was um, especially if you look at the polling, I was kind of surprised by the level uh, that that issue actually ended up, I think, playing in the. Well, although I would say, Charlie, if you look at our voter analysis, the number one issue by far was the economy, almost half of voters. Abortion was around 10 percent. Some of those 10 percent, of course, are pro-lifers. The rest of them are are pro-choice or, you know, pro-abortion rights folks. And to me, I think that was definitely uh, probably a big issue in a number of races uh, across the country. That being said... A lot of Republican governors, a couple ones I can name off the top of my head, who've signed very significant abortion restriction laws in the last year, won re-election by huge margins. You know, people who were like, you know, they were the ones who signed the, the restrictions. In, in a lot of cases, those were popular restrictions in those states. But they were able to, you know, win running away as sort of normal-seeming Republicans, even with that abortion issue out there. So I... I I get that you're right. I think that was an issue if you if you look at the broad landscape. But I think, to your point, it's a little bit murkier in terms of how potent sure. it was. Uh, and and well, by the way, I would just from just speaking for myself, for the record, if it took a midterm election loss to get rid of Roe versus Wade, I'd take that amen. trade in a heartbeat. Um, I, I'd be more than happy to to rid our jurisprudence of that grotesque injustice and return the issue to the states and to the people, that would be worth even losing the election. I think the Republicans oh, are going to end up narrowly winning the election, which is sort of like, you know, if you're going to take your lumps, this is kind of the way to do it. If that was the direct line, I'm not yeah. sure the line is quite as direct as some people are, are arguing, but I just wanted to sort of give some of my nuance to the point that you're making. Yeah, no, and by the way, I think that, that you put your finger on exactly the the mistake that Republicans made with that issue, um, and, and that is that in in those races where Republicans embraced their issue, explained their issue, you know, th- their perspective on this, um, and talked about it, they can win. The problem was, I think, in a lot of these races where where abortion was not an obvious issue, or especially for us because we were so focused on the economy and inflation and the things that are the number one issue of crime, um, it left the field of debate wide open to Democrats. And I mm-hmm. just know on a personal level, because I, you know, just from talking especially to, to a lot of young people and a lot of uh, young people who voted Democrat, I was astounded at, in the absence of an actual debate about abortion, the things that they walked into the polling booth believing yes. about what the Dobbs decision meant. Like, oh, if you have a, you know, if you have a mother uh, or a pregnant woman who comes in and is bleeding to death from a complication with pregnancy, oh, you're not allowed to, to treat the woman. And it's like, what? We do have a misinformation problem in this country, Charlie. I know the other side <laughs> likes to talk about it a lot. I, I think that they uh, right. are, are too often responsible right. for elements of that problem. But, but yeah. the other thing is, I think setting aside specific issues, because the top issues were the economy and then you had a few others, crime and abortion and others. I think when you look at the types of Republicans who won, 
they were, for the most part, especially in these in these big statewide races, they were quality candidates. They did a yeah. They did a good job. They know what they were doing. The governors, for the most part, cleaned up. Not a single Republican governor lost, not one. Um, you know, you saw Mike DeWine in Ohio, for example, leading the ticket by a mile. Ron DeSantis, what he did in Florida blows my mind. 19.5% win? That's just yes. not something that ever happens in the state of Florida. And yet he did it. Marco Rubio did it as well. There were some high-quality candidates who did extremely well. There were other folks who... You know, maybe just weren't palatable enough to a lot of these independent voters. And I think Republicans picking nominees carefully in the future is a, a big part of this. Yeah, the, the Republicans don't have the uh, luxuries that Democrats have. Um, if you were to nominate somebody, a stroke victim who cannot, if a Republicans were to nominate a stroke or if Republicans nominated a dead person, they're not going to win. But Democrats managed to get away with that, and it's it's really uh, it's really astounding. But you know what? For what you know, rub some dirt in it, move on. Uh, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, it stinks. It's unfair. It's dishonest. But you know what? If that's the playing field, then Republicans have to figure out how to how to win, and you know, fight those issues all the way. But you know, if there's a higher bar, you got to meet it. Yep, I think I think that's exactly right, and you got to face reality as it exists and go and get the job done. And that's why I was so encouraged, and maybe we can end on this note. I just mentioned Florida and DeSantis uh, and Rubio and, and just up and down the ticket there in Florida. I mean, what happened there is absolutely extraordinary. Four years ago, the Senate and governor races came down to less than one percentage point. 0.4% for DeSantis barely squeaked past Andrew Gillum. He completely changed the trajectory of the politics of that state and then just ran up the score in this epic beatdown, the likes of which none of us were expecting. I mean, I was expecting him by Election Day to maybe win by 12 or on a really good night, something like 14, which would have been mind-blowing unto itself. For him to get to almost 20 points, I didn't think that was literally possible. For Republicans, you know, he carried Palm Beach County. He... He carried Miami-Dade by double digits. That is some crazy stuff down in Florida, Charlie. Yeah, and, and of course, Florida uh, you know, and Ohio, uh, not to take away anything from DeWine and J.D. Vance, both of these states are states that were the, are, were the most important swing states in American politics for decades. Yep. Every presidential uh, campaign had to go through there and win those states. And uh, these guys absolutely decimated their opponents, and and you know it's it's and that's another one of those examples of where where I think a lot of this stuff, as as disappointed as a lot of Republicans were, and I understand it, and I was surprised. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of optimism to be found in the tea leaves. Yeah, sure, and and I mean the other thing is the other truth about the point that you just made is sometimes the battleground states change, right? You know, it was it was yeah. Ohio and Florida; those are much redder states. Missouri used to be a swing state; it's now just a red state. Colorado and Virginia were swing states; they're mostly just blue states, especially Colorado. Yeah. You saw what happened there this week; just it's a blue state now, and now it's like okay, Wisconsin, uh, you know, maybe the most closely divided state in the country, Georgia. Arizona, this is the new map that we're looking at. 
and Republicans and Democrats both have to readjust to those new realities uh, as they have been now over the last couple of cycles. Uh, Charlie, last word to you. Final thoughts on the election. I mean, maybe I'll ask you this question with a minute left. And I opened the show with like a rant about this. Surely in the United States of America, we can do better when it comes to counting votes than days after the election, still having like hundreds of thousands of votes not counted in states. It's it's totally, totally insane to me. And it undermines people's faith in the election Mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle. And it's such a disservice to elections and to our voters if we want to encourage people to have faith in the election. This is, that's the worst way to do it. But the w- one last thing I would say that I think is interesting is I, I look at this election very much the way I look at the 2012 election for Barack Obama. Obama won re-election narrowly, um, and because he won, everybody sort of dusted off their hands and said, okay, you know, that's behind us and, and this was a good victory. But then four years later, the, so much of the fury that didn't come out in 2012 came out in 2016. And I think that this is, in a lot of ways, similar for, for Joe Biden. A lot of the fury yep. that we didn't see on Tuesday night is going to come out eventually. I suspect it comes out in 2024. No, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how the country is doing in 2024, who the candidates are, et cetera. I would just say if you're Carrie Lake in Arizona or Joe Lombardo in Nevada, if either or both of them win those governorships, in Arizona and Nevada, I'd say, like, day number one, call up Ron DeSantis, copy and paste the Florida voting system, <laughs> exactly. and pass it in your state for crying out loud. Charlie Hurt, great to talk to you. Opinion editor at the Washington Times, Fox News contributor. Charlie, talk soon. Great talking to you. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. We still don't have election outcomes in a number of key races. We do have election night ratings that are in. And we are proud to announce that Fox News, our team, crushed the competition, beating ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, and CNN, of course. I think CNN was in third place in cable behind MSNBC. 7.7 million primetime viewers tuning in for our election night coverage on Fox News Channel. That is a number that beat everyone else, dwarfed our cable news competition by a lot. And we just want to say thank you. If you were among the more than 7.5 million people who tuned in on Tuesday night, we really do appreciate it. I was part of it, was able to uh, appear a couple times, make a few points on our air, including some of those key primetime hours. Brett Baer, Martha McCallum were the ones who were anchoring our coverage all night long, the whole sort of revolving door of analysts and commentators and panelists and reporters all over the country. It was a team effort here, all hands on deck at Fox, and we were rewarded by all of you, our audience, so thank you for that. Always nice to post a W. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Josh Krasauer with his election analysis straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour out of three. 
between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. 5 to 6 Eastern. Coming up next hour is the happy hour. This is our middle hour, and we are so glad that you are here with us. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast on demand every day, totally free. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. That's our handle there. Also, tune in tonight on Fox News Channel. This evening, around 6.45 Eastern, I'll be on the special report panel with Brett Baer. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow soaring just over 1,200 points today, closing at 33,714. I know the markets keep an eye on politics and the apparent likelihood that the Republicans are going to get the House, probably something that the markets want to see, divided government. But this huge surge today is driven by the inflation numbers today that came out. CPI, we'll get into the specifics later on this hour. They're still bad. I mean, it's not good, uh, but they are slightly better than expected, so less bad than expected. And the hope is that maybe the trajectory or the curve is getting a little bit better, so the market's jumping today on those hopes, among other factors. With us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios, and a Fox News contributor. Josh, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be back, guys. All right, so you and I spent months previewing what happened on Tuesday night, looking through the data, the numbers, the fundamentals, all of it. And it seems like an awful lot of people are surprised by what we're seeing. And on special report last night, I made the point, the outcome nationally is a surprise, despite a dearth of huge surprise individual outcomes, which is kind of a weird paradox, but I think that's what we have been seeing so far. Give us your you know, 50,000-foot view of what's happened. Well, remember throughout the, the, the summer and the fall, we talked about sort of the changing vibes in, in the political landscape. And I think I, the, the three things I was looking at, the, the three things that normally make a, a wave election are your base turning out, and that, that happened for, for the Republicans. Uh, the Democratic base turning out, your opponent's base turning out, that that was a question mark, but the abortion, uh, the Roe v. Wade being overturned and abortion rights taking taking a big factor in this midterm, that, that was a good, good, good development for Democrats politically. The thing that, that was surprising was that independent swing voters that, you know, in a bad economy in a, in a, in a, at a time when people feel the country's headed in the wrong direction, Almost to a T, you see independents breaking away from the party in power. But when you look at the Fox exit poll that came out and we look at the data, actually Democrats won by a narrow margin with these late deciding independent voters. And that that was the surprise of the night. That, we knew the Senate races because of candidate quality issues, because all the money being poured into the closest of battlegrounds. We knew those were going to be close. And they weren't, you're right. There weren't any huge surprises on the Senate map. But the House map was surprising because there were a whole lot of races uh, that, that looked like they were likely to flip, and Democrats won uh, the, the majority, and that's not the lion's share of a lot of these toss-up races that usually go in one direction, usually go against the party in power in a midterm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was the big surprise of the night. It wasn't so much the Senate that we'll see what happens with these final few seats that need to be called, including the, the runoff in, in Georgia. But at the House map and the overall mood of the country – uh, it was very, very sour. The people did not think the economy is in good shape. People didn't think uh, they were doing better than they were uh, four years ago, than, than two or four years ago. But at the same time, they were worried about where the Republican Party was, how extreme some Republican Party candidates were. 
And frankly, with Donald Trump taking center stage in the final week, doing some rallies, uh, you know, attacking Ron DeSantis, I, I also think that that must have had some some impact in terms of the reemergence of a very uh, un, very polarizing and quite unpopular former Republican or current Republican Party leader. Yeah, I mean, you saw what the Republicans did just cleaning up in Florida in a way that I did not realize was even literally possible. This is the the extent of that blowout in Florida. And then a number of other Republicans across the country doing extremely well. And it seems like there's something of a disconnect where independent voters were willing to vote, sometimes in large numbers, for certain kinds of Republicans, but not others. Right. And and that is certainly one of the lessons, I would say, from Tuesday. Yeah, I, I saw a very smart analysis with our over at another network who dived into the exit poll data. And they were really smartly looking at these voters that somewhat disapproved of President Biden. And they voted, if you look in state by state, race by race, these these folks who didn't really like what Biden's doing, but, but were deeply against him, just to sort of mildly against him. Uh, not only did they vote Democratic at, at the national level, but they also voted Republican in, in a lot of key races, like in Florida for Ron DeSantis, in Georgia for, for Brian Kemp, uh, in New Hampshire for Governor Chris Sununu. They, they split their ticket. When there was a more mainstream Republican on the ballot, they voted Republican. When there was a more MAGA-oriented Republican on the ballot, these, dis, these smiled disapprovers of Joe Biden went with the Democrat. And I think that's an important lesson, Guy, that not only do, do candidates matter, but uh, being, being too extreme, playing to just the base, this is a lesson that, that Republicans didn't learn from 2020, that, that you know, Trump engaged in a lot of these primaries, handpicked or, or backed some pretty polarizing candidates. And his record right now is looking quite weak in, in, in these key, key contests where where these candidates won the nomination but couldn't win the, the swing voters. And many of these swing voters did not approve of Joe Biden's performance, but nonetheless were willing to, to cast a Democratic ballot. Let's talk about where things stand right now, because neither the House nor the Senate majority has been projected or called yet. Um, on the House side, Josh, it seems like the Republicans are in the driver's seat. They're expected to win a House majority. The number that I keep seeing is 222, 221, 223, somewhere in that range is kind of the, the likeliest place where they will land. Uh, is that what you're seeing and understanding as well? And am I correct? That would be just kind of like the inverse of where we are right now. The Republicans gained yes. double-digit seats in 2020. On the same night Biden won, Republicans surprised the Democrats with significant gains that night. And then the surprise this year went in the other direction where the numbers didn't go up, uh, you know, as as much as people were expecting, but probably enough to put them in a very slim, like current Pelosi style majority just with the roles reversed. That's right, Guy. I've got about seven to 11 seats um, as a net for Republicans right now, maybe, maybe give or take one or two either way. But that would mean that McCarthy's majority, in all likelihood, is going to be about the same size as, as Nancy Pelosi's majority. And this is this is kind of an inverse of, of, of 2020. It feels a little bit like bizarro world 2020 politics, where you know in 2020 you had Democrats winning 
a narrow majority in the Senate. They were disappointed that they, 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 they had a narrower majority than they ever expected in the House, but they still you know, controlled, controlled government. They still have unified control of government. But now we're looking at a, a likelihood that you have uh, a narrow Republican majority in the House. We'll see where the Senate goes, of course. We still need to wait on those, those outstanding races. And by the way, in both, both years, both elections, Georgia is shaping up a, as a possible yep. tiebreaker. Uh, yep, <laughs> again. So deja vu. And it really does feel like we're back in – look, it's a message that voters are sending. It's a clear message in both elections. Voters want moderation. They reelected a, a president in Biden who said he was going to try to unify the country, but they gave him a big check with a, with a narrow uh, Democratic majority and, and a 50-50 Senate. And I think this election is a check on the MAGA movement. It's a check on some of the extremes that, that were percolating in the Republican Party. This should have been a much better better uh, midterm result for Republicans. Yeah, but, but, but will also functionally be a check on Biden, too, because he won't have Democratic majorities anymore. So, you know, his agenda will have to change radically or just or die. Um, so that's correct, the House. Correct. It looks, it's, it looks it's like a check on both, it's a check on both sides. That's yeah, right. Ex- that's that's right. On the Senate side, and there's some governor's races here, too. Josh, I've been. Pounding away at this all show, I opened with a monologue about it. I I think it's ludicrous that in our country it can take days or weeks to count votes. It's just avoidable. We know how to avoid it. There's a way to count every vote quickly and efficiently. Some states have these insane systems. So I watch with a a very skeptical and jaundiced eye when I hear various people saying, oh, uh, the outstanding ballots, there's like hundreds of thousands of them in Arizona. There's still a a decent number, not nearly as many in Nevada. They're like, well, this benefits the Republicans, and there's going to be this, you know, red wave of these votes coming in, and that's what's going to happen in Nevada. Look, I'm hearing different campaigns expressing confidence about what's going to happen. I don't really know what to believe. I also don't know what to think about the Georgia runoff that's coming up. I can see various scenarios. Is this one of these things where you feel like you might have a handle on at least Arizona and Nevada, what those outstanding ballots mean, or is it just a guessing game? Yeah, I have a better handle, I think, on Nevada than, than Arizona, but uh, let, let me go race for state by state. I mean, Nevada, there there are a lot of, uh, I believe it, it, it's, it's, it's uh, I believe they're mail, mail-in ballots or day of mail-in ballots, uh, that are still left to be counted in some of the big the Clark County, the big county um, in, in around Las Vegas. But it, it does seem like the majority of the remaining ballots to be counted are likely to be Democratic friendly. So we'll want to count them all, see where the results go. But, um, you know, I, I think there's some cautious optimism in Democratic circles that Senator Cortez Masto, despite being counted out for, for much of the fall, could have a chance to, to win re-election. But we'll see. We'll see how those, those ballots go. Yeah, because the Laxalt campaign, campaign on the Republican side, they're saying, based on the math, they, they believe that he's got this thing won. <laughs> so, again, it's just like, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It's just, I, I, yeah, well, one of the things, Guy, that makes it so I – mean, we, we vote in di- – we become so polarized as a country that we're voting in different ways based on your part- partisanship. So – um, like that's what makes Arizona so confusing because uh, day of voters are overwhelmingly uh, Republican. Uh, people who cast their ballot by mail early are mostly Democrat. But Arizona has a long tradition of mail-in balloting, even you know long, long before it became more popular. And uh, you have these votes that I believe meant most of the outstanding votes are people who actually voted on election day, but but actually did not did not vote in person. They actually, like, uh, cast their ballot at a drop box. Right, yeah, they dropped their ballot on Election Day. So what does that mean? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> we should we should wait to count the votes. And there's a lot of I them. Agree with, 
I agree with – by the way, I agree with – the fact that Florida showed in a big state how you can do – you have early voting. You have a lot of ability to, to, to cast your ballot, but they count in an efficient and effective method. No questions, no conspiracy theories. It, it, it's very transparent. Arizona, now, Arizona's had mail-in balloting for a while, but I, there's been, there was sort of a trend out west in Oregon, Washington. Some of these western states moved to mail-in or drop-box balloting systems, and – you know, it does slow the countdown, and it, it does take a while. California is probably the best example where uh, it can take weeks to count some of these, these crazy. T- tightly contested. And one of the reasons, Guy, in California is you can turn in your ballot, and it doesn't have to arrive at the election center until a few days after the election. So you also don't crazy. have all the ballots in on, on the time uh, by the time of the election. So I, I think a lot of these laws could be reformed, but the problem is this has become so politicized, it's hard to get anything constructive done. Yep. Yep, I, I think that's right. But, I mean, look, to me, it's not a political issue. My rant at the top of the show was not favoring Republicans or Democrats. Like, let's do a thing that works where we have certainty early and people can feel good about it and confidence in it, which I think is, is something that we need in our system more than ever. And meanwhile, you know, we'll have weeks to break down Georgia and what's going to happen on December 6th. Republican sources seem to be saying that they're feeling very good about Nevada and increasingly optimistic about Arizona. The Democrats are saying the opposite thing, and we just have to sit here and stare into this black box and wait for these magical ballots days later to drop at random times. Uh, w- what a way to do this. <laughs> it's just like enough. It's, it's, it's totally crazy. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter, Axios, Fox News contributor. Josh, appreciate it. Talk again soon. Thanks, guys. It is the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Some economic numbers next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for being here. Headline from Fox Business today. Inflation holds grip on U.S. economy in October as prices remain stubbornly high. Consumer prices continue to hover near record high, keeping pressure on the Fed. So that's all true. It's still bad out there, as we all know, and we can feel all the time. But in the inflation report for October, there were a few signs of slight improvement, which is good. Inflation cooled more than expected in October, but consumer prices remained near a multi-decade high, continuing to squeeze millions of U.S. households and small businesses. That's the lead from the Fox Business story. Labor Department said Thursday that the Consumer Price Index, CPI, a broad measure of prices for everyday goods, including gasoline, groceries, and rents, rose 0.4% in October from the previous month. Prices climbed 7.7% on an annual basis. So we are still way above where we were last year. We are still way above where we need to be. These are stubborn and painful prices, but at least... The rate of increase, the acuteness of the pain, dropped just a little bit in October compared to September. And hopefully on the trajectory, things continue to get better. The Fox Business story says those figures, the new figures, were both lower than the 8% headline figure and 0.5% monthly increase that was forecasted by economists. Potentially a reassuring sign for the Federal Reserve as it tries to tame the runaway inflation. Then you look at core inflation numbers, also down from expectations, still up, but down from expectations a little bit. 
climbing 0.3% in October from the previous month, down from a 0.6% increase in September. From the same time last year, core prices jumped 6.3% overall. That's on core inflation. So this is not worth celebrating. This is not good news. This is still more bad news. And inflation is much worse than it needed to be. Some of it is beyond anyone's control, global pressures, etc. Some of it is because of the Democrats and their insane, reckless spending that they did, as now some of them are willing to admit. And their aligned economists, a bunch of them, have been saying for well over a year, almost two years at this point. But maybe it has peaked, maybe, question mark, and it's going to start heading back down. Of course, the Fed is raising interest rates, which is part of this. It's not the Inflation Reduction Act. It's not something that the policymakers in Washington have done, the elected policymakers at least. It is the Fed. The Fed, which is deliberately trying to soften the U.S. economy and clamp down on demand, which is the worry about a recession sometime next year or the year after, because this is the series of steps they have to take to get a handle on this horrible inflation. The cure is really rough. Hopefully, at least on the inflation front, it is just now starting a little bit to work. We'll see in the months ahead. And if you want to be a hack, you're like, hey, look, the Republicans look like they've just won the House, and already they're delivering results with lower inflation than expected. Uh, Obviously, that's a joke. But these are numbers that we will continue to watch because they affect so many people. And it's been so painful for so long. And with that, we will step aside. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. I want to talk to a newly elected Republican congressman who will be joining the next Congress, part of that little red wave in New York State, also making history in his victory. That interview straight ahead. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home, and the podcast is free every day. Well, we mentioned this next individual on yesterday's show as we were talking about the midterm elections and the results that were coming in and are still coming in. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Republican George Santos, who is the winner in New York's 3rd Congressional District. That is a flip from blue to red. And if and when the Republicans take the House of Representatives, George's seat is a big part of it. In fact, New York playing an outsized role this year. We mentioned that yesterday as well. George also making history with his victory out on Long Island as he is now part of what was a red wave in New York, perhaps a red trickle nationally. George, welcome to the show. Congratulations on your win. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. I mean, look, it's just thrilling. You and I saw each other at our mutual friend's place in New York a couple of weeks ago, Shane and Vincent, and you and I were talking, and you were running through some of the numbers, and you felt like you had a very good chance of winning. You barely lost last time in 2020. You had a lot more money at your disposal this time, more resources, more support from the party, and you told me, look, I think – There is a decent shot here that I'm going to be a congressman. And I said, if that happens, I'm going to get you on the show to talk about it. And here we are. Promises made, promises kept, George Santos. Amen. (laughs) Yes, let's talk about how you did it. Talk about your district. Talk about the history of that district. And how did you go from a political neophyte 
to a congressman elect. So let's let's talk about politics for a second. I didn't play politics this entire race. I talked about issues that were hurting everybody, issues that kept moms and dads and people up at night before they went to bed. The cost of living, the cost of energy, crime, inflation. These are real bread and butter kitchen table issues. And I made the entire campaign about them. Growing up as a very, very poor kid, I had those issues and I saw the worry on my parents' face and I see them today in everybody's face. So I wanted to talk about those issues. My opponent made it all about smearing me, calling me all sorts of crazy things and smearing my name and my reputation. I kept my head up high and I just went to work. I, it was about door knocking. It was about communicating with the electorate. And I just did it. it this wasn't a campaign. I fought this campaign. I fought the establishment. This Establishment doesn't like me, but the reality is here's the here's where it comes down. Quality of candidate matters. We need to recruit candidates who are sensible, transparent, honest, and sincere, instead of just finding candidates based on inside po- po- uh, political baseball. So that's why I feel very proud because I did this. Yes, a lot of resources, but I'm proud to say. I had very limited outside spending in this race. My opponent outspent me ten to one. On down to the nickel on this, with almost $2.4 million of TV ads on negative ads against me on the last 10 days. Mm-hmm. And guess what? A 16-point swing going from a Joe Biden plus eight seat to a George Santos plus eight seat. That is a 16-point swing. That is a landslide victory and a resounding rejection to their proposition as my opponent was trying to, to put forward in our district. Yeah, and I'm looking here. In your neighboring 4th District, also on Long Island, that was a narrow Republican win, also a pickup. That's a big deal. That was a Biden plus 15 district, and the Republican won that race very narrowly. You had breathing room. You won by eight points, as you just pointed out. That is a pretty comfortable win for you. And I'll tell you, George, I was in New York for almost a week leading up to the election, doing a ton of Fox And at night, I would get back to the hotel. I'd put on TV. I was watching sports. I was watching whatever. And I saw the attack ads against you. And they were all the grainy photos and images of you, dangerous George Santos. They were coming after you for being, you know, too conservative, too pro-life, all this other stuff. And you focus your campaign on, as you pointed out, bread and butter issues, also crime, And it seemed like whatever your opponent's strategy was and the Democrats coming after you on some of these other issues, it just clearly didn't work for them. Well, not only that, look, if you looked at if you follow the campaign, there was a very interesting time in the campaign where he was all about isms and all these virtue signaling points. And when he started losing rooms to me, civic associations. And grassroots organizations that were inviting us. And when he started losing the room. He started changing his message, and you know you're ahead when your opponent starts to sound much more like you mm-hmm. and less like himself. And as he did that, I said he probably polled and saw the same polling numbers I was seeing. Our last poll on October 18th had me up 17 points. We never shared any internal polls because we didn't want to share it and put it out there. I was being cautiously optimistic, and the strategy was simply – don't share the data because don't trigger any, you know, don't trigger any organizations to come in here and say, "Uh oh, so we let them play their their cards and they played them wrong. And look, we unseated Sean Patrick Maloney, who was an abject failure in retaining his own seat for Congress in a safe Democratic seat. Yep. And that was further upstate in New York. I want to ask you about New York, because 
look, you're going to be part of a freshman Republican class that is going to be less sizable than a lot of people expected and certainly less sizable than Republican leadership was hoping for. It looks like the GOP is on track to win the House. It's not finalized yet, but it's going to be awfully close, a very small, tough majority in that House because the aforementioned red wave really didn't happen. It didn't sweep across the country. But in New York, partially because of Democrats' own greediness and arrogance where they tried to draw a map that was so illegal that the Supreme Court of the state had to throw it out. That made a lot of these uh, districts a lot more competitive. But because of that, we actually have seen something of a red wave. In the Empire State, of all places, New York might have a very important role in a potential Republican House majority. We talked yesterday, George, about Lee Zeldin. Of course, he lost. He fell short against Kathy Hochul. Really tough for a Republican, especially a conservative to win statewide in a place as blue as New York. But he only lost by five or six points against Kathy Hochul, which is impressive, all things considered. And I kept saying, even if he doesn't quite get over the finish line but does well and has an energetic, good showing, that can help a lot of people down ballot, including folks like you. Do you think that Lee Zeldin doing what he did across the state was significant and helpful to your victory? These four House flip seats are Lee Zeldin's victory for the people. And I get goosebumps when I say that because he's a dear friend, and I'm very upset he didn't win. He's an honorable man who served this country and has served this country honorably through his military service and has served in our state Senate and has served in our U.S. Congress for eight years now. Yes, I look at this. This is Lee's victory. In, in, in between lines, that's how you got to read it, because we campaigned a ton with Lee. All the candidates campaigned a ton with Lee. Lee is a role model in the Republican Party, and we're only able to contribute and be a big part of the incoming majority in Congress because of uh, uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin. And we have a lot to be thankful. And let's remember, it's, it's good to note and point out. Andrew Cuomo won re-election in 2018 against Mark Molinero, a very popular Republican and a very, very pro-choicer Republican, by 23 percentage points. Kathy Hochul won by five, maybe four when it's all said and done percentage points. And I got to tell you, that is an, that's an affirmation that the direction that the state is going is not correct. If, if Democrats were happy with it, she would have won by double digits, and she did not. So I really hope she takes that into consideration into her policymaking moving forward, which, I, unfortunately, I am going to have to take a seat and wait for that to happen because I might get tired <laughs> of standing and waiting on her. But the reality is I'd really like to see her care for the city and fire Alvin Bragg and repeal cashless bail and really – reformulate the uh, criminal justice reforms law from 2019. It failed. It's a bad, bad reform. It needs to be repealed, and something better has put forward. Uh, look, the reality is I, I thank this victory to Lee. Absolutely. I worked hard. I'm not discounting my victory because I worked really hard. I was out there all day, every day, 18-hour days. But Lee Zeldin played a massive role, and I think Lee Zeldin is somebody to watch out for the future because I don't think he's quite done yet. I want to ask you two more things quickly about Washington, D.C. and D.C. politics moving forward. President Biden announcing yesterday that he intends to change nothing in his approach to his presidency after these elections. He also said he plans to work with the Republicans, majority or otherwise, depending on which house you're looking at. And he hopes that there are areas where there can be agreement and productive, constructive working. He said voters also expect Republicans to work with him as well. What is your thought on that? How do you plan to work with Joe Biden where you can and then oppose and hold Joe Biden accountable where it needs to happen? 
Look, the reality is we're going to have to have a very strong come-to-Jesus moment when we're in the majority and we hold the speaker's gavel. I'm going to fight and advocate for responsible in increasing in energy production in this country. It has to happen. His energy policy does not work. His energy policy is hurting the people that can afford the least to be hurted, which is our lower-income citizens in our country, where they can't afford to put gas in their cars or heat their homes this winter with the increase of fuel. So we need to hold him accountable, and we need to change his energy policy, and it's going to be through legislation. Now, whether he wants to Fail the American people and go on record by vetoing vetoing a bill sent from Congress. That's on his conscience. That's on him. I will continue to fight for the American people so we can continue to deliver an affordable, prosperous, and safe America because that's the obligation of Congress and then uh, the obligation of the United States government deliver a good society that's 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 un, it's unprecedented to me that we have people in government who don't hold those priorities to be the top priorities for them and go in there and play political nuclear football with nonsensical issues so i'll work with the president so long as he's working willing to work with us because i always said this i didn't i don't like him wasn't my choice for president but I'd rather him be successful because his success is all of our success. His demise is all of our demise. So, again, I'm going into Congress to work, but I'm not going to bend to the liberals in Congress. I'm going to work to advocate for common sense, normal solutions that are going to help all Americans, including and specifically the members of the constituents of the 3rd Congressional District. My guest is Republican Congressman-elect George Santos from New York 3, flipping that district on Tuesday with an eight-point win. Lastly, George, and briefly, we don't love playing all the identity politics games the way that the left does, and they sort of fixate on this stuff. However, I will point out the history that you're making here. You are, and correct me if I'm missing anything, but you are the son of immigrants, you're Hispanic, you're Jewish, you're also openly gay. I think you're going to be the first openly gay Republican elected to Congress ever if i'm if i'm not wrong about that have you gotten a bunch of hosannas and puff pieces yet from the mainstream media about all of the history that you're making or are you doing it as the wrong type of politician uh that's a funny one so being being a openly gay republican uh usually gets you banned from magazines i don't think they extend (laughs) any invitations but no i have not gotten my vanity fair spread and i'm very disappointed (laughs) i haven't heard yet because last i recall aoc had that request in within hours of beating joe crowley which you know was historic but um no i haven't i don't expect it that's not what i did this for quite frankly i might not consider it even if it came up the reality is i did i didn't do this for me this was never about me this was always about the people i'm going to keep it that way because i want to stay true to who i am if i'm making history sure I'm making history, and I think that's fantastic. I'm going to be one of two, uh, one of two Jewish Republican freshmen. I'm going to be the only LGBT uh, member of the Republican Party in Congress. Guess what? I'm going to have a bunch of caucuses that I can form, and I'll be uh, it'll be an echo chamber for myself to scream in. But the reality is, is uh, look, this is about the people, and it's it's cool. A lot of people keep telling me you're making history. This is so awesome. Look, if I can use this to inspire diversity of thought for kids watching at home and listening, teenagers who, you know, struggle with their their political opinions based on their sexual orientation, hey, just because you're gay doesn't mean you got to be a Democrat. That's just that's a fact. And, yeah, and this, or Jewish this, or Hispanic this, or, or, you Jewish, know, or Hispanic. family of immigrant. Right. Exactly. So this is just the proof that that is called diversity of thought. And I, I want to inspire the next generation to, to think 
whichever way they want to think and not fall into silos or boxes because they're told that, oh, if you're this, you got to be this. So mm-hmm. I'm very happy that I'm, I'm, I'm able to be a, a reference point moving forward. Yep. Diversity of thought. Amen. Very well said. George Santos is the next Republican congressman from New York's 3rd Congressional District, a Republican, a pickup for the GOP, a precious pickup this cycle. George, again, congratulations, and we'll catch up once you're here in town. Thank you, Guy. Appreciate you. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thanks for being here. Well, as you have probably heard, we are all headed collectively to a runoff in the Georgia Senate race that might end up determining control of the U.S. Senate. December the 6th is the date of that election. And if this feels like deja vu, well, yeah, we just went through it last year as well. And I know Republicans are hoping for a different outcome this time in a very, very polarized state. And we'll probably talk a lot about that Senate runoff in the days and weeks to come. But I want to just talk about Georgia through a different prism for a moment and take an opportunity to salute Governor Brian Kemp and his political achievement, what he pulled off on Tuesday. Absolutely extraordinary what this man has been able to do. Four years ago, tough year, 2018, he narrowly won that election down in Georgia. His opponent famously, Stacey Abrams, wouldn't concede. She and basically all the bigwigs in the Democratic Party spent four years claiming that he was essentially illegitimate. The election had been stolen from her. They were election deniers. It was dangerous. It was counterproductive. It was toxic, but they did it for their own political reasons. And he faced fierce opposition at every turn. I mean, on COVID policies, right, they went after him hard for starting to open up the state of Georgia. They went after him with a bunch of lies, a pack of lies about the voting reforms which were good, sensible reforms in that state, and they went full racial demagogue on him, on the Republicans in that state, worse than Jim Crow, Jim Crow 2.0, all of it. And we talked about that a lot here. And a bunch of corporations fell in line with the Democrats and spewed or at least amplified or indulged and bought into the lies. He had a lot thrown at him, and then on top of all of it, He had the former president of his own party, Donald Trump, attacking him relentlessly because he wouldn't do the whole stop the steal charade in the state of Georgia. And Trump viewed that as a betrayal. He was very mad. He was insulting Kemp, pressuring him constantly. He was so upset with Kemp that he went so far as to recruit a primary challenger to run against him for governor to try to unseat him on the Republican side in David Perdue. And I know Kemp's people all got in a room and people were nervous. Can we survive this? And Kemp said, we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to do it. And he executed flawlessly. He never bent to the hysteria of the left ever. He never collapsed or got on his knees and did whatever Trump wanted. But he also, very in a very disciplined way, never actively alienated Trump's supporters either. He won a smashing landslide victory in the Republican primary to get renominated, and then he wiped the floor with Stacey Abrams, beating her for a second consecutive time, this time by eight points and a clear majority. What an impressive threading of multiple needles by Brian Kemp over the last four years. 
And I think you just have to take a step back, take, take your hat off, and start a slow clap for what he was able to do. Given all the cross currents and all those pressures, and after all of it, he's still standing and elected to a second term with a mandate four more years for Governor Brian Kemp. I mean, just bravo. Impressive. We'll be talking a lot more about Georgia up through early December, as I mentioned. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Jessica Tarloff is here with us next. clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Thursday Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show, or Friday Eve as we like to call it. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. Options there. Bonus content. And catch me tonight on the special report panel with Brett Bayer. Probably around 645 Eastern Time. That's on Fox News Channel this evening. Hope to see you there. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is absolutely delicious and refreshing. As I mentioned yesterday, we just got our new shipment here at the house. We will probably imbibe in the lead-up to Thanksgiving, and then as we're hosting Thanksgiving, we encourage you to check it out. If you haven't tried it already, if you are 21-plus only, of course, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. With us now is Jessica Tarloff. Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, also chief romance and baby correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. And, Jesse, it's great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you. So I just have to say, last week, really on the weekend, Adam and I were both in New York. You and I did a special outnumbered edition together on Sunday. And Mm -hmm. afterwards, you had a friend in town, and we were all chatting And you very kindly invited us over to your place because I, A, had never been to your place. B, had never met Cleo, your baby. And it had been a while since I had seen your husband. And so you said, hey, bring Adam over. Why don't we get together? And so we did, and we hung out. We had some football on. We met Cleo. It was so fun. Thank you so much for that. Oh, no, it was uh, totally our pleasure. I was so thrilled you guys could come. And obviously to meet Cleo, who's the highlight of any get-together. But what I think... It's more relevant for everybody else was our final discussion of the visit, which is it is so much easier to impromptu schedule getting together than to plan in advance. Like plans never work, but just, hey, do you guys want to come over for a drink? Usually does. Um, yeah, so big fan of that. It's difficult for me because I am very much a planner. Sometimes a planner far in advance. Like, for example, I have a vacation planned for next August, and I've had it planned for months and got a lot of people on board for this vacation and needed folks to commit and book flights and all of this stuff. So sometimes that's my mindset, and sometimes that's required, depending on what you're trying to get together or what you're trying to plan. However, you and I, I'm pretty sure, 
the last two times we've hung out socially, you're right. It had been like the four or the day of like, oh, hey, you're around. I'm around. You want to hang out. Whereas if we've ever tried to sort of like coordinate something farther in advance, that's never quite worked out. And this was day of. We hopped in an Uber, went down there, and it was great. Cleo is like way bigger than I was expecting. It feels like you just had her a few months ago, at least in my mind. It's like, oh, she's an infant. She'll barely. No, she was like crawling everywhere she was like army crawling all over the floor pretty fast she was standing up and maybe getting a little little scary on one of those tables i was like oh she can reach stuff are you at the point where you have to really start baby proofing uh well i think you know that i am past the point where i should have baby proofed um (laughs) and now i'm just a bad mom uh, but I think a lot, like, with how fast she is, remember Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman, where she loses the escargo, the snail, and she goes, slippery little sucker. And I feel that way with my baby all the time. Like, they can wriggle out of anything. Um, they are on the hunt for whatever toy or thing that they think that they saw that they want. Um, and we are actually giving that coffee table um, to my mom. Um, she's moving, and it's perfect for, like, the second room, and we're going to have to get, I don't know, like an upholstered poof thing or something that she can just <laughs> slam her head into um, and not become concussed. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's big. I mean, she turned one next month. So yeah, No, that's, that's we're, crazy we're there. that we're yeah. almost up on a year. It's just that time has completely flown by. And I will say, last thing before we get to politics, we were at one point you had to go do something in the other room and you just said, Oh, just keep an eye on Cleo. So I had all the responsibility here on uncle guy. And it was, it was actually quite concerning and, <laughs> and, and very nerve wracking for me. And at one point she was standing up against that coffee table that you just mentioned. And she kind of like stumbled a little bit and hit her head just a little bit. And she looked at me and I remembered something that my parents had said, which is if they're really hurt, they will let you know if you, if Vince, concern or you're scared they are more likely to cry if you give them the sense that you're fine they'll be fine so i looked right at her i gave her a huge smile and made a happy sound like little clapping and she just sort of like took a beat she's like are we upset should i be upset and then she saw me smiling and she gave me this giant smile and everything was fine i was like okay i think i think i passed not a test but like a little quiz i i mean you did better than I would have because I have the panic attack and then she starts <laughs> crying and Brian, my husband is like, why did you do that? Um, so yeah, no, I think you did great. Honestly, uh, you know, 30 second dad style, a plus rating. Thank you. Yes. For 30 seconds. You and Adam. <laughs> yeah. It's like the most I can handle at least for now, 30 seconds. All right, Jessica. So we had the election on Tuesday. It was obviously less of a big Republican night than a lot of people were expecting. It is still mm-hmm. entirely possible that both houses go to the Republicans, just, you know, the margins here were not what the buzz and a lot of the vibes and the fundamentals had suggested. And we're entering sort of an interesting moment in our politics where you're going to have, if you're the Republicans at best, extremely thin majorities in both houses, maybe in one house yeah. and then status quo in the other. You'll have a president who remains unpopular, but a little bit of wind in his sails, at least politically, because He didn't get the drubbing that a lot of people were expecting. I'm fascinated from your perspective as a Democrat. What comes next within your party in terms of Joe Biden's standing, Joe Biden's future? Because I think the knives were trying to come out for him right before the election. And now it's like, oh, maybe, you know, second look at Joe Biden. 
And then, of course, you've got the leadership in your party on the congressional side, the House leadership. Everyone was expecting that to have a wholesale change. Does that still happen at the top of your party? What's next? Um, I think that, well, I mean, the president was quite clear yesterday when he came out and spoke um, that this was a good night for Democrats. And I think that there's always this feeling or people talking about the idea that Democrats have to change what they were doing after they did something good, like win, right? And that happened in 2020 as well. Um, And people are talking about it now. And I understand why Biden is a little dug in saying, you know, we had a history-defying midterm. Let's see how everything shakes out. But it it looks pretty good, certainly considering the fact that the usual historical advantage is 27 lost seats, um, and it can get up into the 60s, right, if you get really shellacked. Um, My hope is that we're able to integrate the lessons of the midterm, which are to have a better, you know, more cohesive economic message and also to address people's very real fears about crime. Um, and to blend that all together and then go on to have a very successful 2024, hopefully, you know, hold the presidency. Um, I think that we are going to hold the Senate. I have always thought that. Um, but then, you know, win back the majority in the House and, and be on our merry liberal way. So that's my thinking. But do you win it with Joe Biden in two years? And is yeah. it still Nancy Pelosi? I would doubt that it would be Nancy Pelosi at that point. Um, there was an article, I think, in Politico about, um, you know, becoming Hakeem Jeffries this time. Um, he's been the heir apparent um, for the speakership for for a while at this point. But, yeah, it's with Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden won the 2020 election. I believe firmly that he was the only Democrat who could have done that. Um, and when you look at what's gone on so far, why would you say that, Joe Biden shouldn't be at the top of the ticket, barring any sort of, you know, health emergency or major change um, in terms of what's going on. That's, that's the thing that I just I, I, when conservatives ask me, you know, are you just going to renominate this guy? And I'm going to say, yeah, wh- why wouldn't we renominate this guy at this point? I mean, I still don't think he's up for it, but I can understand the thought process behind it. I think the Republicans would be more eager to run against him next time. And I would just push back a little bit. I don't think this was a good night for the Democrats. I mean, relatively speaking, yes, but they lost. They're going to lose the national House popular vote, unlike the last couple of elections. And after their blue wave in 2018, they had 235 House seats. And then that dropped. They lost double-digit seats on the same night Biden won the election, which is you know not exactly some big thumping national mandate for Biden, right? Because they were expecting to expand their majority. It contracted by double digits. That's why the Republicans' floor this time was a lot higher than some of the previous waves. Now, they didn't get to, they're not going to, 235, 240 or beyond because they had an underwhelming night on Tuesday. But it looks like they're probably going to get to a majority. So you net that out, that's a couple dozen lost seats on the night Joe Biden won and then in his first midterm, it just kind of feels like the country has delivered a number of split verdicts recently. And I think the Republicans would be nuts to feel like, you know, they're on a great trajectory here and the American people are very excited about the Republican Party. Obviously, that's not the case. I also think the same thing applies to the Democrats. There's a lot of very dissatisfied voters out there who are not convinced really that either party is looking out for them. I think that's a challenge for both sides moving forward. I 
absolutely agree with that. And obviously we'll see, you know, how everything shakes out once everything is called. Um, but people continually underestimate Joe Biden and he continually proves them wrong. And people should keep that in mind um, when they count him out. All right. We shall see what happens if he's going to make a decision. It will be next year. He said probably early 2023. They'll talk about it as a family. He intends to run again. Jesse's bet is that he will. I'm not fully betting that he won't. I'm still leaning that way. Uh, But there's a lot to happen between now and then on both sides of the aisle, frankly. We'll be talking about it here with all of our guests and friends, including Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five. Jesse, great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. You too, yeah. And thanks again for coming over. You bet. Thanks for having us. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is back right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. So I don't really watch and haven't for years on a regular basis, really almost ever, new episodes of Saturday Night Live as they air. I'm not typically like, oh, it's Saturday night. Let me make sure I'm on a couch in front of a television at 11.30 p.m. to watch that show. I don't really watch any of the late night shows. I'll watch Gutfeld from time to time, of course, When I'm lucky, they'll have me on, usually once a month or so. I've got another date coming up in a few weeks. But I don't watch late-night comedy as much as I used to as a kid. Like, when I was a teenager, high school, into college, I loved Late Night with Conan O'Brien on NBC. That was the 12.35 start right after The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And it was just a wild scene with Conan. I just liked his style of humor. I liked his delivery. He was really smart, but also kind of wacky. And they would do sometimes kind of like low brow humor, but in a clever way. Some of the recurring characters, some of their bits. I just really liked it. It was like a slightly neurotic show. And it would make me laugh out loud. There are still certain clips I will go back and watch. Then things started getting weird because they gave The Tonight Show to Conan, and then Jay Leno, I guess, wanted it back or it wasn't working out, and things got kind of bitter, and Conan ended up leaving the network and going to TBS, and I didn't really watch that show. And just sort of the constellation of late-night shows that I used to watch and enjoy slowly broke apart and has been replaced now with a combination of shows that really just don't appeal to me. A lot of them are boring, left-wing, scold shows every night. Like Stephen Colbert, his whole identity now is just kind of like, you know, liberal group therapy leader. I know a few people have made that comparison in the past. Seth Meyers, who is now in that old Conan slot, I have I don't think ever watched that show. He does political commentary constantly there. It's so boring. Jimmy Kimmel, the same thing. I saw Kimmel was complaining the other day about how he's lost so many fans. So but you don't have to agree with us on everything. It's just the Endless lecturing and hectoring. I think I might have mentioned on the air briefly that he brought his wife on the show right before the election to give a whole little secular sermon about abortion on a comedy show. This is the guy famous for, like, the man show. Chicks bouncing on trampolines. They would sit there, he and Adam Carolla, and drink beer. And now he's, oh, this, you know, great cultural icon who is sneering from on high at people who think differently. It's like, who has time for that? I guess if you're in the tribe... 
it's self-affirming and it's enjoyable, but if you're anywhere other than a full-blown, like, drink the Kool-Aid leftist, it just is so inane, insipid. I see these montages sometimes where these late-night shows, they are such a hive mind where they all agree with each other so much, they make almost verbatim the exact same jokes on the same night. And they pull their punches, if they have any punches at all, at the left and the Democrats, it's all one way. It's just, you know, I guess they get some enjoyment out of it. I don't get it. And there was a whole story recently, I believe in the New York Times, about how the late-night landscape might be going away because the shows aren't doing as well as they used to. And there's a bunch of factors behind that. Politics, probably one of them. Saturday Night Live, of course, is this variety sketch show. Venerable, it's been around for decades. And boy, they, I would say, need some intellectual diversity in that writer's room. As a callback to our interview last hour with the new congressman from New York, George Santos, that show, it's like they do their opening sketch. They call it the cold open. And even though we are living in this democratic era and there's so much to ridicule and make fun of and mock with Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, it's like every week it's something about the Republicans or Fox News or Donald Trump. It's just stale. Well, this coming weekend, the reason I mention all of this is Dave Chappelle is the guest host for SNL this weekend. And he's an interesting guy who ruffles some feathers. The woke left hates him. We've talked about all these boycott movements against him, and it's just crazy. Here's one of the most successful black comedians of our era. Whether you like him or not, he's a genius. He can be very, very funny, and they've turned on him because sometimes he makes jokes about gay people and trans people. I'm fine with comedians making jokes about groups that I'm a part of because comedians make jokes about all groups. We're all part of humanity. No one should be above mockery or poking fun. They say, oh, he's punching down. The whole thing, I think, is pretty pathetic. But he'll be hosting SNL this weekend, and the New York Post reported that some of the staffers, some of the writers at SNL, are boycotting the episode because they don't want to be a part of, I don't know what, a comedic hate crime or something because Dave Chappelle is the host. I would guess that the show will probably be better because of their absence. And because of his presence, it might actually be funny and interesting and different and creative for the first time in a while. So maybe I will watch if I can. So just a quick note, some of the wokest people in the SNL ecosystem will be on a brief leave of absence apparently this weekend. And a very interesting, creative, comedic thinker, Dave Chappelle, will be doing the hosting duties. So it's at the very least intriguing. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Stay tuned. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Thanks for tuning in. Earlier in the first hour of today's program, we welcome back Charlie Hurt, Fox News contributor. Got his reaction and analysis on the midterm election results that are still coming in. Here's part of that conversation between yours truly and Charlie Hurt. All right, so let's just talk about uh, some of your big picture reactions. I'm going to be talking to a bunch of our regular guests here over the coming days and probably weeks about just how they're digesting what happened on Tuesday. And, of course, we're still waiting on some of these results. But overall, we're getting a picture of what probably happened. What do you make of it? 
Well, uh, the first thing is, obviously, I, I think, uh, along with a lot of people, I was surprised by um, the outcome. I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. I don't know uh, the last time I saw a situation where you had the, the level of voter discontent, the issues facing voters that – and what was so unique about this, I thought, was how directly you could tie so many of the problems – like inflation, like open borders, like crime, directly to the policies of the party that was in power, that that, that, that party in power didn't get a withering denunciation on Election Day. That said, I, I think that there is a lot more good news here than I think that, that our surprise by how bad it wasn't for Democrats has concealed the fact that there was a lot of good news in this for Republicans, and I feel like you've done a good job. You were doing just a good job, a good job just a minute ago, explaining a lot of the bright spots in the election, and I think there are even more, um, uh, and then and not only um, were there a lot of bright spots in the election this time, but I also think that, that with the messages that Republicans are honing, that in two years from now, I think that they're going, Republicans are going to be in a very good situation to continue making gains uh, off of those with those exact same issues. So, Charlie, it looks like, and I see some of the smart set who they follow this stuff very closely, they're saying Republicans are going to win the National House so-called popular vote, which is in some ways an irrelevant metric because that's not how those elections are tabulated, right? right? The, the national popular vote is, is kind of an interesting metric, but not one that actually matters in our system. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, in, in Senate cycles, the Democrats love to say, look how many votes that we won in our Senate races, and yet this is so anti-democratic. Like, they play these games. I'm just going to point out that this year Republicans are projected to win by, I think, about two points nationally, the popular vote. And with that, they will probably have a very, very, very thin House majority and maybe a very, very thin Senate majority as well. That's going to come down to a couple of states here. There's still three remaining. So I guess that would be the good news that Republicans, you know, won the the so-called popular vote, won one probably, if not both, maybe houses of Congress. But the margins, as you pointed out, you know, really are surprisingly tight. And part of the reason is I was looking at the Fox News voter analysis, which is sort of our advanced exit polling. Republicans narrowly lost independence. Republicans were expecting a pure independence. I think sometimes, you know, there's folks who say that they're independent and then they they actually lean one way or the other. So I think probably among independents without the leaners, Republicans did better. But among the pure independent voters, Republicans narrowly lost those voters, which is not what anyone was expecting. It's not what history dictates typically happens. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. If they went almost evenly between Republicans and Democrats, those pure independents, despite all the problems that you just mentioned, all the so-called fundamentals of the race, it seems like you had a lot of people. This is just my read on it, but not a not a profound one. A lot of people who were very unhappy with the status quo very unhappy with the president, not thrilled with the direction of the country at all, but they did not know which party they wanted to vote for because 
in some respects both were unpalatable to them. That, I think, is an indictment of both parties, but at least in this context, a little bit more of the Republicans because usually the opposition party almost by default wins a lot of these people just because they're not the people in charge and people aren't happy, not this time, at least among independents, Charlie. My full interview with Charlie Hurt, Fox News contributor, our colleague here, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the podcast, which is the full show, on demand, start to finish, every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, are the younger generations in America ruining or abandoning a longstanding professional tradition? We'll tell you about it and explain, then debate it amongst ourselves next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast. Free on demand every single day. I'll be on special report again tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and the whole team. So see you there in the next hour on Fox News Channel. Here's a headline from the New York Post. Gen Z party poopers have ruined after work drinks question posed at the top of the article is, is happy hour really that happy? And I would say, well, here at this program it is, especially if you're enjoying a long drink during our happy hour. But the post story says that's the debate on tap as workers settle back into going into the office and potentially grabbing drinks with co-workers at the end of the day. Some young millennials and Gen Zers, so this would not be me, I'm an older millennial. I don't think I'm in the geriatric millennial category, but I'm definitely on the older side of millennial. And Gen Zers, which would be Quiet Wyatt and his cohort, although he's unlike most Gen Zers, I would say, they tend to be overly concerned with healthy work-life boundaries and are taking a stance against socializing with colleagues. So they quote one guy who's 27, I enjoy my private life, I enjoy not to hang out with coworkers when I'm trying to relax and not think about work. And other people are saying in this story that typically when you go out with colleagues for drinks, a lot of the conversation is centered around work and workplace gossip. And I guess the younger generation doesn't really want to do that. They want to have their work separate from their social life and not really have them blend or cross over very much. And so I guess what you're seeing is younger generations of American workers either giving up on the tradition of after-work drinks or just sort of boycotting what other people are doing. I will say that I see both sides of this. I understand wanting to have something of a boundary because, especially doing what I do, there are not that many boundaries because I kind of have to be up on the news all the time. And I've got a little computer in my pocket at all times in my cell phone where I can keep up to date. That's great. It's convenient. But it also makes it very hard to unplug. And sometimes when I'm home, I just want to not think about news, put on something like HGTV or a cooking show and hang out and have nothing to do with work, see no one related to work. And that's nothing against anyone at work. 
I get along with my colleagues. So I get it. I also think that there is a benefit to getting together in social settings with the people that you work with to try to build sort of a team camaraderie to get to know people, to understand what makes people tick. I'm not super into the workplace office gossip stuff. I don't really have time or bandwidth for that. But just getting to know people. I think it's just a normal human thing to do. You don't have to be best friends. But I will also say some of my very, very good friends I have met at work. So if this was my plan, if I was going the millennial, young millennial, Gen Z route here, would I be very close friends with Katie Pavlich, for example? Some of you might recall that a few months ago, I was over in Greece with my husband for our friend Kennedy's 50th birthday party. And guess who else was there? A bunch of Fox people. Emily Campagno and Dagan McDowell and Kat Timpf, significant others. I mean, would I trade that experience just to keep these two elements of my life completely separate? What's the fun in that? It's great to have friends at work. So I get the setting of boundaries, but I think if you take it to an extreme, you are hurting yourself professionally because, yeah, there's such a thing as networking. Advancing in one's career is sometimes political. Who you know, who you're friends with. Are you top of mind with certain folks? Quite frankly, I could be better at it than I am. i just putting this out there. And you're also, aside from perhaps limiting your advancement in your career, you are limiting your opportunities for meaningful friendships as well. That might happen to be in the workplace. So that's my take on this story where I'm siding somewhat against the trend of the youths and giving some old man, not too cranky advice about why perhaps they shouldn't avoid this like the plague based on some stand. I know there's a lot of people who just don't really want to take a lot of pride or have all that much investment, personal investment in their work. That's not how I am. I've never been that way. I think being invested and proud and involved in what you do is a huge part of fulfillment in life. Not the only thing. I think that's where it gets unhealthy, but one healthy part of personal industriousness and fulfillment. So thus endeth the lecture from yours truly. It's time now to talk to a member of the older generation, I believe a boomer, and then also our resident Gen Zer. Let's start with the boomer, producer Christine, When you read this story in the New York Post, did you have a strong reaction? Well, I have a strong reaction right now to you calling me a boomer. I am a millennial. So we have to put that out there first. You're you're somewhere in between Generation X and the silent generation. You're you're somewhere in there. I refuse to believe that you're a millennial, even a geriatric millennial, which I think is a rude term by the way but anyway please please go on on let's stay on subject here let's not let's not quibble about small details so i i think gen z is hurting themselves by not doing this i am a big big fan of becoming friends with your coworkers. um i know each the industries are different but in our industry we spend so much time with our coworkers, like for me, they were inevitably gonna become my best friends. One became my husband. One is my daughter's godfather. Um, I 
before I had Megan, I was out all the time, you know, traveling and hanging out with, I mean, the majority of my friends were my coworkers. I mean, look at you and I. We've become best friends over the mm. years. YY and I, Dan Dan, Maxie. Um, I think that, but I, I here's the one story that I, I actually related to because I could see this happening with a certain somebody on our team. Um, one of the uh, people said that they went out and they invited one of their coworkers to their house and they had a really bad experience because the next day at work, the person heard that the other one invited was saying mean comments about her living situation, saying there was a lack of luxury in her home. Well, and that's rude. I know, but um, you say that about my house all the time. No, I don't. So, First like, of all, I, I absolutely do not. It's not about luxury. It's not about money. It's about taste, right? You can have a, a simple budget-friendly decor that is not tasteless. And I can only judge your decor based on your descriptions of said decor because I've never been to your house because I've never been invited. So, like, I feel like this is not really – this was meant as a gotcha for me, but it's not. So <laughs> we can we can move on. Do you have, Christine, by any chance, decor in your house that say things like live, laugh, love? So, so in the apartment, I only have a couple. Like we've talked about, I have the gobble to you wobble. I have mm-hmm. a sign that says happy fall, y'all. Mm-hmm. I have another sign that says, may there always be an angel by your side. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have anything else but the house that I lived in that I just moved from. I believe every single room had some sort of sign that said Signage. something. And there yeah, was, did you have, yeah, you had was, live, laugh, love, live, laugh, love? Oh, oh, yeah. It was like live, laugh, love, cry, hug. Mm-hmm. Like it was a whole, yeah, it was even more. And that did was you like have, the did focal you have point of my living Gather, room. gather. Uh, oh gosh, yeah. I had letters. You know. Oh, oh. You know what I had? Like I had sign that say like hope, faith, and love, and like you put them together like a trio. Oh, in my bedroom, I had um, <laughs> over the bed it said always kid good night. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm glad. I've just I have let you have the floor, and you have explained <laughs> some things, and people can make their judgments as they so choose. But reeling this thing back into the topic at hand, let's go now to our Gen Z correspondent, YY the Clown, who is technically Gen Z. He's sort of, I don't know, a grandpa in a Gen (laughs) Z body. So I don't really know where he's going to come down on this. Wyatt, do you enjoy hanging out with colleagues, or are you scrupulous about keeping your personal life separate from... I don't know, someone like producer Christine. Well, Guy, after the last 45 seconds right there, who wouldn't want to go out for a drink with Christine after work? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) just seems like a real fun time. Yeah, so many great stories. But honestly, I do think it's it's a fun thing being kind of younger and and like a, a few weeks ago, me and Christine went out for drinks and it was a fun time. We had other people in the building up in New York that came out with us and I had a great time. We don't really have that down here in D.C., um, but I think that, that that's part of the experience of working in a job or working in a city as well. I think that you know some people don't have that work environment, but especially here at Fox, I think we do. Yeah, I think that's generally right. And part of the reason that we do things like the Benson Show Retreat is because it builds teamwork. 
and friendship, and it makes it easier to enjoy showing up every day. And I've got this Christmas party set up, uh, let's see, less than a month from now, and the whole team here is invited, and everyone is RSVP'd, yes, and they're all coming, right, Christine? Um, I'm I'm working on it. There, I'm well, you're a on yes, it. though. You're a yes on the on the computer here. I've got I've got right. the list. Are you are you going? Are you gobbling till you're wobbling on this? <laughs> um, there's just some um, family stuff going on. I'm I'm working on it. I mm-hmm. I will be there. I will make. I will figure it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm definitely going to well, try to be there. But you know the hosting part that I had mentioned that I wanted to yeah, do co-hosting it. Yeah, yeah that's uh, out. Let's, let's shelve that. Yeah, let's shelve great, that for now. Great, great. It was already shelved, so it is back to not oh, your party or our party. It is, it is my party and Adam's party, and that's fine. I will therefore not ask you to cut the check, which you had agreed to do, but I will very mm. generously, because of your family situation, I'll give you a reprieve this time. So we will have some Benson show socializing here with lots of other colleagues from Fox and Town Hall and then other friends. I like mixing it up with people and letting different friend groups meet each other and just have a good time. And when certain walls need to go up and certain boundaries need to be drawn, fine, so be it. But I'm kind of a more the merrier type of person. And I will be especially merry on the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show tomorrow. We will talk to you then. Have a fabulous evening. See you on Special Report on the news channel coming up in the next hour. And thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.